The Revolt of 2020 by Patrick Johnston. Copyright 2011 by Dr. Patrick Johnston. Read by Daniel Meyer. By kind permission of the author, this reading of The Revolt of 2020 is available for free distribution. Stay tuned at the end of this reading for more information and links to additional resources. The Revolt of 2020 Part 1. The People's Crisis, the Tyrant's Opportunity Chapter 1. Austin, Texas We're completely surrounded. They're trying to blockade the clinic. What? The 18-year-old college beauty sitting on the exam table glanced with worry at the only window in the room. Has this ever happened before? The sound of the chatter outside grew louder, and she pulled her thin hospital gown tighter against her skin, shivering more from anxiety than from the chilly air falling from the vent above her. Not as long as I've been here. The nurse regretted her frantic announcement and tried to comfort the patient with a pat on the thigh. Don't worry, Jessica. The police will start arresting them, and then they'll disperse. The patient's eyes grew dim, and the nurse could tell that the sedative was taking effect. A dark-skinned man in green scrubs entered the room, pushing a waist-high machine on wheels. Ah, there's the physician now. Hello, ma'am, the physician greeted the sedated patient in his thick foreign accent. He rolled the machine beside the exam table. This'll be over in a few minutes. The nurse plugged the machine into an electric outlet, flipped a switch, and it jolted to life with a hum. Will it hurt? The freshman brunette slurred, her speech affected by the medication. You only feel a little bit of pressure. No, will it hurt the baby? The nurse and the physician stared at each other uneasily for a moment, and the doctor ordered her, Two more Versed and fifty Demerol. He donned the sterile rubber gloves and grabbed the speculum. Will it hurt the baby? It's just a blob of tissue, Jessica. Dr. E inserted a plastic speculum to visually examine her cervix. It can't think, it can't feel anything. The physician was startled by what sounded like gunfire in the distance. What the? He jumped off his stool and headed to the window. He saw federal agents in camouflaged-clothed soldiers arresting protesters and loading them into several buses, but he could not see where the gunfire had originated. Several of the soldiers began to raise their weapons and turn their attention to the west. The nurse joined the abortionist by the window. He shut the blinds with a curse and then returned to the patient. Come on! The FBI and the military will do their job. Now let's do ours. Yes, sir. As Dr. E. reached for a pair of pincher forceps on the table of instruments, the singing outside the clinic grew loud and bothersome. He tried to remain focused on his duties. You'll feel a little pinch, ma'am? He grasped the lower lip of her cervix with the forceps and the patient complained in a slow drawl. Ow! One more milligram of Versed. The physician began to insert steel rods into her cervix, beginning with the small rod, and then moving to larger and larger rods, to gradually dilate the opening to the womb. He slid out a shelf from the top of the exam table between the patient's legs to catch any blood that dripped out. He grabbed the suction device attached to the wheeled machine. When he inserted it into Jessica's dilated cervix, she roused from her somnolent state to let out a gravelly moan. Suddenly, the cheering and shouting from the protesters outside grew very loud. Dr. E. was suspicious, so he went to the window to glance outside. He felt confident that most of the protesters would freely depart when faced with arrest, but he was shocked to discover that those who had been handcuffed and detained on the yellow school buses were getting off the buses and coming back onto his property. The soldiers on the sidewalk did not appear to be trying to prevent them. Dr. E. was furious. He removed his gloves and threw them on the floor. Then he unlocked the window and opened it about six inches. He parted the blinds and shouted at the soldiers on the sidewalk, What in the world are you doing? His shouting startled Jessica and the nurse. Jessica turned to the doctor and saw him gazing out the window through the parted blinds. 
The hundreds of protesters blockading the clinic turned to the abortionist and began to shout reproofs at him, and he hastily shut the window in the blinds. He stomped back to the patient and donned fresh gloves. Let's get this over with. Momentarily, Dr. E heard yelling coming from the hallway outside. At first, the words were not discernible. Then he heard, Dr. E! Dr. E! The abortionist handed the suction device to the nurse and bemoaned the fact that he had not given enough sedative to the previous patient. He removed the speculum from Jessica and stood up to exit the room, predicting that he would have to restrain an unruly, emotional patient in the hallway. Just as he reached for the doorknob, the door opened, and in stepped the unshaven Austin Sheriff, six foot four and sixty pounds heavier than when he was a heavyweight boxing champion. Dr. Aladamodachi? Sheriff Matt Wellington slowly stepped through the partially ajar door. Yes? The doctor had a confused look on his face. Have you completed this abortion? Ah, uh, no. Why? Well, then, for this, Sheriff Wellington said as he flipped off the abortion suction machine, you'll be charged with attempted murder. He pointed down the hall and ordered his deputies in the hallway. Those patients are to be cuffed and taken to the hospital along with the records. The sheriff turned to face the doctor. For those abortions, you may face charges of first-degree murder. You have got to be kidding me? Dr. E's foreign accent became more prominent with the rise in his adrenaline. Sheriff Wellington took one look at the patient on the table and raised his voice. Get the squad in here! The officer just outside the room made a call on his radio for the emergency medical team to make their way to room 8. This is my patient and I'm in the middle of a procedure? This is a violation of my rights and the rights of this patient? I'm the chief law enforcement officer in the city of Austin and I'm placing you under arrest. Under arrest? The sheriff glanced at the stunned nurse who anxiously gripped the clipboard. Arrest all the staff as murder accomplices. The murder weapon is in here. This procedure is perfectly legal, the physician shouted. A panel of three federal judges ruled the Texas Life Bill unconstitutional this morning. The state of Texas is going to prosecute you anyway. Where's that squad? The sheriff turned to look over his shoulder at a subordinate on the phone in the hallway. I want an EMT squad now. No! Dr. E's shrill scream made the austere Austin sheriff flinch. The physician reached under his scrub top and unholstered a thirty-eight caliber pistol. He raised it and leveled it at the sheriff's chest. Sheriff Wellington's eyes widened, and he put up his hands as the doctor prepared to shoot. The doctor pulled the trigger, and the bullet struck the sheriff's left shoulder. The force of the bullet striking bone slammed him against the wall, splattering blood onto the mirror. The sheriff grunted in pain, then darted from the room just as a second bullet whizzed above his head. The two deputies in the hallway unholstered their weapons and prepared to fire through the open door. Dr. E. ducked behind the exam table just as Jessica tried to sit up. He grabbed her by the hair with one hand, put the tip of his handgun to her temple, and dragged her off the table till she was standing in front of him. She screamed in terror as Dr. E. shouted out orders. Get the FBI in here or I'll kill her! The two deputies lowered their weapons. Don't shoot her! The FBI! They're just outside! I want an FBI escort out of Texas now! Okay, just take it easy. When Dr. E. pulled out his handgun, the nurse had crawled behind the suction machine to hide. Dr. E. saw her and ordered her, Shut the door! When she was slow to move, he screamed louder and pointed the gun at her, Shut it now! The nurse quickly obeyed. The adrenaline rush Jessica was experiencing soon overcame any effect the medication was having on her. When she realized that the gun was no longer pointed at her head, she stomped on the doctor's right foot, thrust her head forward, then whipped it backwards and struck his nose. He cringed in pain and dropped the gun. It landed by the foot of the exam table. Jessica lunged for it, and the physician pushed her forward. Her body slammed against the table, and she fell hard to the ground. The deputies heard the struggle and peeked in the door. When they saw the physician had been disarmed, they leveled their forty-five caliber handguns at him. Freeze! Put your hands in the air! He instantly complied. Jessica reached for the physician's pistol, and that's when she saw it. 
A three-inch fetus leg lay beside the gun. Her body was expelling her mutilated baby. The leg was perfectly formed. She could count five little toes. She opened her mouth in horror and screamed at the top of her lungs. At first the deputies thought she was gravely injured, but when she grabbed the pistol, rose to her feet, and aimed the gun at the abortionist, they froze. Whoa, young lady, put that gun down. We'll arrest him and put him on trial. She turned and aimed the gun at them briefly. He was going to kill me. He killed my baby. Just put it down, sweetheart. One of the deputies noticed the river of blood pouring down her leg, apparently from the incomplete abortion. We're going to give your baby justice. Put it down and we'll get you to a real doctor. No! Get me a preacher! You don't want to do this, one of the deputies pleaded with her. I need a preacher now! She slammed the door shut with her foot, careful to keep the gun aimed at the abortionist. Sheriff Wellington had been leaning against the wall in the hallway, diaphoretic with pain, applying pressure to his shoulder wound to try to stop the bleeding. The two deputies turned to him for guidance. What do we do? Get her a preacher. Why does she want to... Just do it! Matt Wellington sat down in the hallway just outside the room and leaned against it. One of the deputies rushed from the clinic and found a man who claimed to be a preacher just outside. He had been helping to orchestrate the crowd of protesters who surrounded the clinic. He was a thin man with a light brown goatee. He had a well-worn, muddy orange cap pulled low on his brow. He did not look like a preacher at all. The deputy briefed him on the situation on his way into the clinic. He knelt down beside the sheriff and prayed a brief prayer for him. Are you a concealed carrier? Do you have a weapon? The preacher shook his head side to side. That's not the kind of weapon that'll pull down these kind of strongholds, sheriff. She could shoot you. She's not in her right mind. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The smile on the thin preacher's face was quite out of place. The sheriff gazed into the cool blue eyes of this thin preacher with the UT cap, and he felt at peace. Philippians 1.21, Sheriff Matt Wellington responded, giving the reference to the Bible verse. I'll be praying. The preacher rose, slowly opened the door, and poked his head into the room as the officers kept guard beside their injured boss. He quickly assessed the situation. The dark-skinned physician's face was covered with blood from a broken nose. He leaned against the wall in the corner of the room with his hands raised, a look of terror on his face as he begged for his life. A young woman in a thin hospital gown tied loosely in the back pointed a thirty-eight caliber revolver at the abortionist. She trembled as she stood in a pool of her own blood. Her face was as white as the tile floor. A nurse cowered on her hands and knees in the corner of the room. The woman glanced at him quickly, careful to keep her aim on the abortionist. Are you a preacher? Yes, my name is David Jameson. When the deputy outside the clinic approached him, his heart had been pounding from a surge of rapturous joy at the closing of the last child-killing center in the state of Texas. At first he was worried that the deputy had identified him. He was, after all, the most wanted man in America, according to the FBI. As he watched this pale, anxious young woman aim the pistol at the abortionist in the killing room, his heart found a new reason to pound wildly inside his chest. "'Will God forgive me if I kill him?' She did not turn her gaze from her target as she asked her question. When the preacher hesitated to answer, she turned to him and warned him coldly, I've got enough bullets in this gun for every person in this room, so don't try anything funny. He told me it wasn't a baby, but there's a little leg right there on the floor. She stepped six inches closer to the abortionist, the gun shaking in her grasp. He deserves it! No, Jessica, please, no! The physician summoned pity, begging for his life. David's thin frame, prematurely thinning hair, and nasal voice had never been the stuff of confidence. He had been thrust into a storm of political conflict and raging violence apart from any choice of his own. Revival in God's church and across the nation was his unbending prayer. He never wanted revolution. All he wanted was the unhindered presence of God in his life and in his country. All he wanted was freedom for his children. But God wanted him to be the bridge of heaven over the pit of hell. She raised her voice to a high-pitched shrill, the gun shaking in her trembling grasp. Will God forgive me if I kill him?
Columbus, Ohio, four months earlier. The cameraman raised three fingers one at a time to let her know when they were going live. Then he pointed at the woman with the microphone. We're here in front of the Columbus Civic Center, where the president is scheduled to speak at the National Reproductive Rights Convention. It's a packed house made up of pro-choice leaders and health care providers from all over the world. As the newscasters spoke, police officers pressed against the anti-abortion protesters who tried to crowd behind the newscaster to get their posters broadcast on air. Mitch Payne's limo was soundproof, so he couldn't hear the pro-life activists calling out to him from the sidewalk. Unless he comes out with some kind of practical plan to secure women's rights from the anti-choice theocrats, then I'm not impressed with his ability to read speeches. The professor from the University of Texas was riding in the long black limo with the leaders of the National Organization of Women, W-O-M-Y-N, and the Human Rights Coalition. Give him time, the NOW director responded to Payne. With some states defying the courts on abortion restrictions, the pressure's mountings for the executive to get more aggressive. We've never had a better friend in the White House. The driver pulled up to the curb outside the Columbus Civic Center and then stepped out to open the door for his customers. Professor Payne reluctantly nodded at the feminist leader. The Human Rights Coalition leader offered his opinion. His VP's more dedicated than he is. It was she who came out against the right-wing domestic partner compromise and supported gay marriage. The esteemed professor nodded. Exactly. We had gay adoption for, what, two decades before we finally got legal marriage in all 50... Mitch Payne saw something on the opposite side of the road that immediately spiked his adrenaline level and infuriated him. He got a glimpse of a large color poster of an aborted fetus. Without even looking at what had captivated him, the NOW director knew exactly what had so upset the professor. She waved his attention away from the sign holders and toward the door. Oh, just ignore them. The driver opened the door for the professor first. Payne stepped out, straightened his tie, and ran his fingers through his shoulder-length brown hair. However, he couldn't take his eyes away from the offensive signs across the street. He held out his hand for his wife, who exited gracefully with her jade business suit. She was thin and had long, straight black hair. The others stepped out of the opposite side of the limo, gave a critical glare in the direction of the sign-wielding protesters, and then quickly turned away, feigning they could care less what the Jesus freaks of the world were doing. Four security officers had surrounded the limo to help keep the tract distributors from approaching the important guests. Payne swallowed hard and tried to look away from the signs, but like metal to a magnet, his eyes kept turning back to them. Those religious fascists are the stain of our country. The whole pitiful lot of them needs to be re-educated or... or... He paused and searched for words that would express his disdain for religious fanatics, but let out a curse instead. Not far away, a confrontation was brewing. We are not moving again, officer. I'm not going to ask you again, Mr. Jameson. We have deferred to you repeatedly, officer, but we are not going to let you infringe on our First Amendment rights. David Jameson raised his voice to be heard over the commotion on the sidewalk in front of the Columbus Civic Center. If you don't move, I'm going to have you all arrested. The officer waved his thick muscular arm at the other protesters, who pulled in close to hear the conversation. He was six inches taller than Jameson and a hundred pounds of muscle heavier, but David was not intimidated. This is a matter of public safety. Your protest is getting out of hand. David Jameson had been working for several months to bring together a large group of Christians to minister outside of this event. Hundreds showed up. They peacefully held signs, distributed tracts, and prayed for a breakthrough. David knew the law well enough to know that this officer was bluffing. About 50 college students gathered across the street holding signs that read, Keep abortion legal. They took turns leading each other in chants to stop the hate. While David was conversing with the police officer, he got a tap on the shoulder. David turned to see a young man who attended his church, Jared, frantically pointing across the street. There's Mitch Payne, that liberal professor from Texas that's always on TV. David looked and recognized the man that stood beside the limo across the street. Go see if he'll talk to you. 
Jared darted across the four-lane road between cars and made his way up to the professor. Jared was a 30-year-old lanky fellow with sharp facial features. He wore a gray t-shirt with a photograph of a large noose on it, with the words, It's a pro-life thing. You wouldn't understand. Underneath. Hey, professor. Jared reached his hand through a few college students who gathered around Mitch Payne and offered to shake his hand. The professor raised his eyebrows at the attention and shook Jared's hand, but Jared held on to it and motioned at a large sign across the street. Did you know that the baby pictured in that photo was the victim of someone's choice? One of the security officers put his palm on Jared's chest to push him away, and Payne pulled his hand out of Jared's grasp. Some choices are evil, professor. Don't talk to them, Mitch, one of the feminist leaders beside him recommended. The professor turned to his companions. You can go inside. I'll be in soon. They turned to head inside the civic center with one of the security guards. Only the professor's wife stayed beside him. The professor waved the security guard to the side to let him know that it was okay for them to talk. The professor was burning to find out what motivated these hate mongers. The officer speaking with David became distracted by a buzz on his two-way radio and turned aside to speak to his superior. David looked across the street and saw that Jared had engaged the well-known professor in conversation. The security officer stepped to the side and let them talk. As David walked across the street, he heard Jared begin to raise his voice. They're babies! Little babies! Jared's characteristic coarse voice bellowed through the chaotic noise of passing cars and hundreds of voices like a thunderbolt through storm clouds. Have you ever heard a pregnant mother say, Here, feel my product of conception kick, or I wonder if this fetus inside of me is a boy or a girl? No, they only use Latin to describe the baby if they want to kill it. The professor laughed as if he were trying to explain multiplication to a four-year-old who just wasn't getting it. It's a developing human, not a person. An infant's a developing human, too. You're just a fetus grown up. The professor's wife stepped up next to her husband and blurted out, What about rape and incest? Would you force a 12-year-old rape victim to carry that fetus to term? David stepped up next to Jared and patted him on the shoulder, as if to let him know that he was going to respond. Rape is a violent crime against an innocent person, he calmly responded. A violent crime against an innocent person is never a remedy for a violent crime against an innocent person. The baby's a victim. Don't kill the victim. Let a loving family adopt the child. The professor's wife rolled her eyes and looked away as if she were bored with their conversation. Mitch Payne turned to David and asked, Who are you? David Jameson. He extended his hand to the professor, but the professor didn't shake it. He just looked at David's outstretched hand with disgust, as if it were covered with leprosy. More and more students, who appeared to be pro-choice supporters of Mitch Payne, began to surround them. And you're with the sign people, the professor asked David. David chuckled at the professor's terminology. Yeah, we're here to call our nation to repent for the shedding of innocent blood. The professor puffed his cheeks out and shook his head as if he were at a loss for words. By prosecuting abortionists? The professor pointed at a sign across the road that read, Prosecute abortionists. Yes, we need justice or we'll not have God's mercy on our land. What about the women? You want to prosecute them too? David licked his lips and nodded. We shouldn't be letting murderers off the hook if they're moms, should we? Even when God forgives the murderer who repents, we should still prosecute them. The professor looked at Jared and for the first time got a glimpse of his shirt. His jaw gaped open in utter abhorrence. Jared saw the professor flinch when he read his shirt and he cast a conniving half-grin at him, as if to show that he enjoyed getting under the liberal icon's skin. Mitch Payne then closed his lips and spit right in Jared's face. You miserable! Jared pushed the professor and a security officer stepped between them. Hey, back off! Two pro-lifers grabbed Jared's arms and he struggled against them. This show of aggression unleashed a torrent of violence from the horde of students that surrounded them. One of them grabbed Jared's hair, another grabbed his shirt, and others heaved curses and threats on him. Someone pushed David and he almost fell into the road. Pro-life protesters that were nearby came to the rescue of Jared and David and this rush of people caught the attention of several officers. A half a dozen police officers across the street halted traffic and came running toward the melee. 
Come on, Jared. David pulled at Jared's arm. Let's leave him be. No! Jared was livid. He wiped the spittle off his face onto his arm. He looked up and saw the mocking grin of the college professor as the security guards led him toward the front entrance. The police officers came up to Jared and instructed him to remain calm. Jared protested, Mitch Payne just spit on me. That's assault. Just back away. If you aren't going to enforce the law, then find another job, Jared quipped, breaking free from those who grabbed his arms. Four police cars came to a stop on the street in front of the sidewalk with their blue and red lights flashing. Even more officers made their way to the front of the rapidly growing crowd. David stepped up to insist that Jared leave the situation. That's enough, Jared. Let's go. One of the police officers approached Mitch Payne and his wife at the entrance of the Civic Center and asked them to file a police report. Reluctantly, they followed the officer to his squad car. The environment was much more peaceful inside the packed Civic Center. Attendees were dressed in the most formal attire. The men wore suits and the ladies were decorated with gold and diamonds on a backdrop of colorful dresses. They began to applaud during the introduction of the speaker they were all looking forward to hearing more than anyone else. Actor Tom Cruss had the microphone. With that, I give you Time's Man of the Year, winner of the 2019 Nobel Peace Prize, United Nations Peacemaker. The audience rose to its feet, clapping wildly. Broker of the historic Israeli-Palestinian Peace Accord, international defender of women's rights, my good friend, and undoubtedly the greatest man in our century, the President of the United States, Raymond Fitzgerald. Many of the men cheered, and some of the ladies had tears in their eyes as President Fitzgerald walked up the stairs to the podium. He gave Tom Cruss a hearty hug, and the famed actor walked off the stage, waving to his admirers. President Fitzgerald was dark, tall, and handsome, with a sharp, wide jaw, like Governor Mitt Romney without all the capitalistic hang-ups. The president waved his hand and nodded at the cameras. Thank you, thank you. Please, please be seated. Thank you. Momentarily, the audience settled down and everyone took their seats. It is an honor to stand before some of the bravest advocates of reproductive rights the world has ever known. He looked right into the camera. America, you owe a debt of gratitude to these great leaders and organizations. If it were not for their dedication to the right to choose, America might still be suffering from the religious tyranny that existed in this nation before 1973. His countenance and tone shifted to coincide with the more serious and somber topic. In those dark days of our nation's history, women trapped in the dire straits of an unwanted pregnancy had to pursue back-alley abortions in inappropriate facilities and with unsterile equipment. If the woman was caught, she faced a stiff jail sentence. The crowd stilled as they recollected the fascist era, before the monumental Supreme Court decision that effectively legalized abortion in the United States. Now, thanks to your valor, there is hope for a woman with an unwanted pregnancy. We all owe you a debt of gratitude. The audience rumbled with fresh applause as the president pointed at them with both hands. You've kept the hope of free choice alive. But, my friends, hope undefended is hope soon lost. His audience mumbled their agreement with his eloquent proclamation. We find ourselves today standing before significant obstacles in our defense of the right to choose, and our list of adversaries is growing. For a woman to get an abortion, she must endure a throng of hate mongers waving detestable signs, and state houses full of male bureaucrats devoted to restricting her choice, legislating what she should and should not do with her body. He pounded the podium authoritatively for emphasis. With their state restrictions, with their signs, with their hate speech, they're pushing against us with all their might. Tonight, my friends, we are pushing back. The crowd began to cheer and applaud vigorously again. This day I have submitted to Congress a new measure called the Justice for All Initiative, which will forever secure the right to choose for posterity's sake. The president then reached below the podium and pulled out a half-inch thick stack of bound paper. Never again will reproductive rights be threatened by intolerant anti-choice politicians in the United States of America. As if on cue, the crowd stood and began to cheer and applaud with tremendous enthusiasm. Hold my baby! Hold my baby! 
An admirer at the edge of the waist-high rope called out to the president as he shook hands below the platform after his speech. Please! The president paused, turned, and saw the middle-aged woman amidst a throng of reporters and supporters clamoring for his attention. Thank you all. President Fitzgerald waved and smiled as he made his way to the mother. He reached for the baby, and the proud mother steadied her camera. The president whispered in the ear of the eight-month-old baby girl. The baby was clad in a picturesque, bright red dress. The baby turned to him and giggled, clawing his cheek with her chubby fingers. The crowd laughed, and some clapped as a dozen camera flashes captured the memorable moment. "'Hello, Mr. President!' An African-American gentleman in a tuxedo reached past the young mother as the president returned to the toddler. "'Mr. President!' Thank you. The president grabbed the man's husky hand and shook it vigorously. Will you hold my baby? The African-American gentleman asked as the mother moved aside. The president nodded, but the gentleman did something the president did not expect. He pulled something out of a Ziploc bag in his pocket and pressed it firmly into the president's palm. Its wetness startled the president, and he looked down at what lay in his open palm. That's a 16-week-old abortion victim, Mr. President. The president's jaw dropped, and he let the bloody carcass fall to the ground. He stepped back a step, his face paling as the Secret Service began to comprehend what was happening. They suddenly closed in on the intruder. A half-dozen women shrieked in horror as the fully formed fetus fell face up onto the carpet, one leg missing and his abdomen slit open by an abortionist's tool. The African-American man immediately dropped to his knees and put his hands behind his head, knowing that he could be shot for any suspicious move. Four Secret Service agents rushed toward him. The president was in shock. He wiped his blood-stained palm on his thigh. Another Secret Service agent pulled on the President's arm and led him quickly to the side exit. The blood of the aborted babies cries out for justice, the protester's strong, deep voice thundered throughout the auditorium as four Secret Service agents pounced on him. One of the agents placed the man in a submission hold on the side of his neck to silence him. Someone grabbed the microphone on the stage and encouraged the attendees to be calm. Everything is under control, the man assured those present. Please, let's give the President's Justice for All initiative one more round of applause. Outside the Civic Center, six officers surrounded Jared as he continued his protest of what he perceived to be the injustice of the officers. You aren't keepers of the peace or the law. David had given up trying to get Jared to back off his offensive posturing. David stood on the outskirts and encouraged the others to ignore him and distribute their literature. Finally, one of the officers made a move on Jared and grabbed his ears from behind, pulling them outward. An officer on each side grabbed and locked his arms straight out behind him as they twisted his wrists to bring him flat on the ground. Jared went limp, hoping that somebody was catching all this on video. One officer twisted his earlobes and pressed his face against the hot cement. Other officers surrounded him. One of the officers yelled, Stop resisting! Stop resisting! Over and over, while two officers held his hands down, as other officers stood on his elbows and his knees. Jared let out a loud shriek of excruciating pain as his joints were ground against the cement. Stop resisting! They repeated as they persisted in their submission technique. Jared screamed for them to stop, but to no avail. Momentarily, they pulled his hands behind his back and handcuffed him tightly. David was also arrested for trying to break the circle of officers to see what they were doing to Jared. They were led quickly to a squad car a hundred feet away. One of the officers tightened the handcuffs even more on Jared, and he groaned in response. How's that feel, tough guy? Jared regained his composure. You're a real hero with that gun and all, torturing unarmed civilians. He sniffed the blood that was dripping out of his nostril and spit blood onto the ground. They removed David's handcuffs before he was seated, but kept them on Jared. Get in the car, punk. The officer shoved Jared's head down and into the vehicle. Once the door of the squad car was shut, David immediately reproved Jared. What is your problem? You're acting like some kind of bully with those officers. We aren't here to promote our rights. Jared groaned in pain as the blood spilled down his chin. He spit. He paused, sniffed his bloody nose, and then repeated, That professor spit on me. 
Oh, come on. Self-control is the fruit of the Spirit, Jared, and the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. David quoted the scriptures in a frustrated tone. Sometimes honoring the Lord and fulfilling our mission is more important than the lesser cause of arresting somebody who spits in your face. Jared ignored the rebuke and glanced out of the window of the squad car. Cars driving past them slowed down so the occupants could get a good look at the criminals in the back seat. David took a deep breath and sighed heavily. Jared couldn't tell, but David's eyes were welling up with tears. Oh, Lord, why do I feel like I'm spinning my wheels? What? Jared searched for David's eyes, which were gazing out the opposite window. After an uneasy pause, David turned toward Jared and said, Sometimes I just want to give up and say I've done my tour of duty. We've been burning up our lives trying to save the babies, and we're still so, so far away. If God wants to protect the preborn, he can do it. I just want to go home and enjoy my family. What are you talking about? You don't give up on anything. David sighed. I'm not giving up. Who knows? We might be right at the border between this wilderness and our promised land. David wiped away his tears, and an unexpected smile broke out on his face. When the enemy comes in like a flood, that's when God raises up a standard against him. That's when he shows himself strong. David turned his gaze out the window and felt his face flush with emotion. Oh God, he began to pray a verse from Psalms with fervency. It is time for you to work, for they have made void your law. Who's that? Jared watched the young African-American man in a tuxedo and handcuffs being hauled toward them from the civic center. It looks like a protester got inside. They watched as he was put into the back of the squad car in front of them. As soon as the door to the squad car was shut, suddenly, in the blink of an eye, everything turned as bright as the sun, and then blackness fell. Thank you for listening to this reading from The Revolt of 2020. This chapter was read by Daniel Meyer and engineered by Park Leacock. The Revolt of 2020 and its sequels, The American Tyranny of 2020 and The Uncivil War of 2020, are available for purchase at docjohnstonnovels.com. That's docjohnstonnovels.com. O Lord, turn us back to you. Forgive our sins and heal our land.